or a phone or some device will be looking at the scripture with us this morning. We'll be in Luke 17. We're coming up on a year now that we've been kind of just preaching through Luke chapter by chapter. Um, and um, as remember, Luke is, is being written to an audience that is wondering, hey, why is there conflict? Why has there been difficulty um, in, in the first generation or so of the church? And Luke is looking to write an orderly account um, from the birth and announcement of John the Baptist through Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and then into his sequel, Acts, which is the first generation or so of the church, looking to just kind of give an orderly account of what God has done through the, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we'll be in Luke 17 uh, before we look at that. Um, in, in the December of 2016, um, I had uh, Carmen and I had had dinner with some friends. Um, it was the Christmas season. Went to bed um, that next morning. I woke up and I did not know what day it was, what we had done the night before. Um, and Carson at that point was young. Um, she had come in and I was in bed and she's like, "Hey, will you play?" And I, and I remember being awake enough to know something's not right, but I don't know what's going on. And I just kept thinking, I just need to get in the shower and kind of like clear my head. Um, and Carson finally goes to Carmen and says, hey, something's wrong with Dad. He keeps asking me what day it is. Um, and so I took a shower, I get out, and Carmen's like, what's going on? I'm like, so what day is it? He's like, it's Saturday. Like, what, what did we do last night, right? Like, why can I not remember anything? Like, what's, what's going on here? And so she finally is like, I think I'm going to take you to the hospital. And so we start driving down Hobart. Um, we drive by the old Long John Silver, and I'm like, man, when did that close? And so like, she hits the accelerator, right? Like, she's like, I don't know what's going on with you, but you're, something's wrong. And so we end up out at the ER. Um, they're doing MRIs and, and CAT scans. And they, they come out, and the initial conversation was, hey, we think maybe you have MS. Like, we're not sure what's going on here, but it might be MS. Um, I, I do have a vague memory of calling uh, Paul Rayburn to say, hey, man, I'm at the hospital. I'm, I plan on preaching tomorrow, um, but you might be ready just in case. Um, Carmen told me after the fact that she stepped out in the hallway and called Paul and was like, he doesn't know what day it is, what book we're preaching. Like, you're preaching tomorrow. Like, like you're preaching. Um, that led to um, like a, a week or so stay um, in the hospital. And in the, in the end, um, it turned out to be what they call a global amnesic event, where I just, I just lost some hours with no real cause and, and no real concern for the future. But that morning, um, as, as we kind of think back and look back, it was, it was just a sudden thing, right? There was no preparation. Um, the doctors kept wanting to ask me, hey, you know, what did you do the night before? Like assuming maybe I had taken some sort of substance or have, have you been having memory um, lapses? Like they're looking for something that would have let them know that this was coming or that I should have read the signs better. But there was nothing. We had had dinner, um, we had wrapped Christmas presents, and we had gone to bed. And I had slept a good sleep. And the next morning, right, it, for a moment, our world was really rocked. And it was sudden, and it was immediate, and there was no warning. And so this morning, as we go into a text, 
Um, for most of us, maybe we don't have one exactly like that, but you can think of a moment in your life where you wished you'd had some time to prepare, right? Where you would have gone, and it would have been nice to just have a little bit of heads up that this was about to happen. Whether it was in your life, whether it was um, um, you know, a car wreck, whether it was a tragedy, whether it was something in someone else's life that you said, man, if we could have just had a moment to prepare, right, I could have maybe affected the outcome a little bit. But we don't always get those moments. And so um, in light of maybe the, the stories that are running through your head um, in, in my story, let's pick up in Luke 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, and there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you'll not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Don't go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying, selling, planting, and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in, in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. All right, it's kind of an interesting, strange passage here. Remember last week we're coming off the story of the ten lepers who were healed by Jesus. Um, only one of them returns to, to worship, to praise, to thank Jesus. He was a Samaritan, a foreigner, right? And in that, Jesus says, it was your faith that has now like, saved you. You're not just healed, you know me now, like you're, you're saved. The other nine were healed, but they missed the greater mercy of Jesus. And so what he's telling the Pharisees here is this, is, hey, listen, you're, you're potentially going to miss this. Like you're seeing healings happen, and you're going, hey, what, so what's the sign of the kingdom? Remember in Luke 12, he said you, you're able to determine the weather. You, you see a storm coming, and you know what, it's, what it means. right? You see clouds, and you know what it means but you're missing what God is doing in the world around you in the coming kingdom. So, they're asking Jesus this. All right, when's the kingdom of God coming and what's it going to look like? Why, why would the Pharisees ask him this question in verse 20? Because there was a, a, a teaching in Judaism, right, that, that when God worked or moved in big and mighty ways, that there were the signs of heaven that would come with it. If you think back to Exodus and Mount Sinai, right? There was thunder, and there was lightning, and there was a cloud. Like, there was this tangible, visible, hey, God is here, and the heavens are declaring it. 
They're anticipating the heavens declaring the coming of the kingdom. They're also expecting not just kind of natural signs, but they're expecting, right, that Rome will fall, that their enemies will be vanquished, that Israel will be put back in a spot as like a, a world power where those around the world will see and come and worship and glorify God. Like they're expecting there to be big power and big movement. And what Jesus is telling them here, He says, listen, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, in the ways that they anticipated. He says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What He's telling them is, I'm here. Like, the kingdom of God is here because I'm here. I have inaugurated, I have brought something to bear. And as we think through, what have we seen Jesus do in Luke so far? Right, we've seen Him raise the dead. We've seen him bring healing. We've seen him bring um, what, like purity to, to lepers, right, and, and their healing. We've seen him, right, continue to teach, to do all these miraculous things, to calm storms, right? As he's been doing these things, he's saying, can you discern that God's at work? It looks different than you anticipated, but he's at work. And so what Jesus is telling them is there's one observable sign, and it's me. I'm the sign that the kingdom has come and, it, and it's, it's, it's coming to bear. So, what, what we're really seeing Jesus do here is let us know that the kingdom has a mystery to it. That the kingdom comes in two parts. Why Jesus has two comings, right? That He has come for the first time in, in humility, right? It looks different than they would have anticipated. And the signs and the wonders and the, the natural phenomenal and maybe even fear-inducing things are going to come. They just didn't come the first time. They're coming the second time. right? And he's reminding them and showing them this. It's why we had the parable earlier, earlier in Luke of the mustard seed. Right? The kingdom has come in a small way, but eventually it grows, right? And the birds of, of, of the world are able to land it, saying like the nations will come to what seems small and insignificant in its birth eventually becomes something significant. The kingdom of God is the same. And so he then, in verse 22, transitions his audience. He's no longer talking directly to the Pharisees, but he's talking to the disciples. He's going to teach them more of what he means by this. I want us to note five things that he's going to talk to them and, and show them. The first is this, is that it's going to take longer than they anticipate for the kingdom to come in its consummation, like in its final form and final fashion. We see this in verse 22. He said to the disciples, the days are coming when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you'll not see it. He's like, you're going to long for and want for this all to be over, for the second coming to have occurred, and you're not going to see it. Right? You're not going to see it. It's, it's, you're going to long for it and want it. It's not going to happen as immediate and as quick as you might want. Right? Why would they want it to happen quick? To avoid suffering. Right? He's told them that as he's headed to Jerusalem, that there is suffering and pain that awaits. The second thing he's going to show them is in verse 24. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, right? maybe as much as almost anywhere in the country, we, we have seen this, right? Where when there's no obstruction of the sky and you have seen lightning rip across the sky and light everything up. And it's 
beautiful and it's fearful and it's awe-inspiring. And he says, listen, when the Son of Man comes, it will be visible. You will know that it has happened. You will not have to wonder, was that it? You'll know. He goes back to verse 23, right? So because you're going to know it, and I'm, I'm confirming that you're going to know it, he says you don't have to listen to those who will say, look there or look here, it's happened. He says don't go out, don't follow them. When it happens, you'll know it. It will be evident. It will be visible. It will be clear. He gives them very, very little in regards to timeline details. But if we look at verse 25, he reminds them that before it can happen, but first, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Right? We know already that He has set His face towards Jerusalem, that He is headed there. There's conflict that awaits. His crucifixion, the cross, awaits. He says, listen, the, 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 the final coming, the final show of the kingdom will not happen until I have been rejected, I have suffered. Right? That is really the only timeline piece he's giving us here in this section. He then tells them, right, it's going to happen in a way that is um, like we've seen in history. And he goes back now to uh, Noah and to Lot. He, he's referring to these two situations where the activity was godless, right? And he says, and then in a moment, judgment came. And we're going to come back to this in just, in just a second. And the fifth is he says, you're going to know it's come because there will be judgment. There's going to be judgment that comes with it. Look at verse uh, 37, the very last verse. Very dark, Edgar Allan Poe sounding verse. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What he's saying is that when, when the Son of Man comes, when Jesus returns the second time, judgment's going to come. And there will be those who will be found on the outside. And you're going to know it, and you're going to see it. They're asking, is there any way we can miss this? And he's like, no, it's going to be visible like lightning across the sky, and there's going to be judgment, and it will be visible as well. Just like a vulture cannot avoid a corpse, like you're going to see the judgment itself. So he's telling them, listen, it's going to take longer than you think. It's going to be visible. You're not going to miss it. There's a, the cross has to happen first. It's going to happen during a godless period where people are just doing their regular routine, their regular activity, and judgment will come with it. Listen, the last two of these are a warning. They're a warning. And he's referring to Genesis 6, 7, and 8 with the story of Noah, and he's referring to Genesis 19 with Lot, um, the story of Lot. And in both of these, we are, they are in godless times where people, listen, they're marrying, they're burying, they're buying, they're doing all the normal days. But if you've read through Genesis 6, 7, and 8 lately, right, you'll remind that it says, hey, that everything they were doing was wicked, with no thought of God, no thought towards God, and that the ark was a warning. We know that in Sodom and Gomorrah, things were heinous and sinful, right, and that judgment was coming. And then we even see in verse 37 this reminder of the starkness of judgment, that the vultures are eating the corpses. We spent time last year in Ecclesiastes. Right, we were reminded that we are meant to live life backwards. That we are not, we're meant to remember that death is a part of this. It comes for us. And that we need to live in light of that. 
right, that Hebrews 9.27 tells us, right, that it's appointed unto man, unto woman, but wants to die, and then there's a judgment. And so what we're seeing here in Luke 17 is that whether the return happens in your lifetime or death finds you first, right, for the disciples, for us, for previous generations, for future generations, whichever one comes, death or the return, following that is judgment. Like you don't get out of judgment in either one, right? That you're going to face the living God. And so this passage is meant to be a warning. Hey, like what's the judgment going to mean for you? And so listen, as we look through passages like this, they can often create fear, it can create doubt, it can make you feel uncomfortable. Um, I remember being a, a late elementary age, early junior high age kid, and it felt like at our church growing up, we didn't have passages like this a lot on Sunday morning, right? But we had them on Sunday night all the time. And I would, when I, I would see the passage, or I'd hear it being read, and I would like break out into a sweat, and I would always need to go to the bathroom, right? And I would stay out as long as I thought I could before my folks would come looking for me. Because the, they freaked me out. It terrified me to think about this. Um, and so, listen, those, those emotions are, are normal for these passages to, to kind of bother us. What do we know? Like, what do we know about the return of Jesus? We know that Mark 13, uh, 32, tells us that no one knows the time. Right? And so pro- prognosticators are wrong. Anyone who says they know, they don't. They're wrong. What we do know is that we're closer today than we were yesterday. Right? Like that, that is as much as we know. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3 reminds us that the Lord is patient. Listen to verse 8. 2 Peter 3. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right? And so what is he, what's He telling us here? Listen, if the disciples had been told it would be 2,000 plus years and Jesus still hadn't returned, they would have lost their minds. Right? But Peter is saying, wait a second, it's been two days. It's been two days. Right? Like, he's like, God isn't measuring time like we are. A thousand years is a day. A day is a thousand years. But he's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You can see Peter almost living out Luke, 6, or Luke 17 here going, listen, this is a warning. Heed the warning. But, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. There's your signs, right? The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so for, for 2,000 years, people have mocked believers, saying, if Jesus said He's coming back, why hasn't He come back? And, right? Jesus has told us, it's going to take longer than you think, and I'm not judging it based on the same time scale that you are. What we know is that it's, the Lord is patient, and it will happen suddenly. And that we don't know the time. So I want us to look at two things this morning to hopefully maybe dissipate some of that fear or that anxiety that we have with passages like this. 
The first is this, that we can trust the character of God. Right? And that sounds um, basic, but it, but it matters. Right? That God's character is worth being seen, understood, and trusted. We've seen that He is faithful to keep His promises. He's faithful, right? So in, in Exodus, if we go back to Exodus, where the Israelites are going to be rescued from the hand of Egypt, and He comes in, He says, all right, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to kill the firstborn if you don't, on the, on the doorpost, put blood. Right? Sacrifice, right? You're trusting me. I will pass over houses that have done that. The blood has been shed. There was a warning, and there was a way out. There was a rescue. And then God did what He said He would do. And there was fear and death and grief and mourning and rescue both happening simultaneously. Both. And depending on whether you were trusting God in that moment, you were either in anguish or you were seeing the hand of God work and move. Like He has been faithful to do that, to provide a way out. And so this morning, as we hear, right, this is our warning, like the Egyptians and the Israelites got in Exodus. This is our warning. He's saying, I'm going to come. And in that, there will be judgment. And so will you see it as rescue and relief, or will you see it, right, with pain and anguish and separation? Those are the only two choices. And so listen, church, this morning, Jesus is merciful. We have seen that His character all throughout Luke. That when He sees those who are suffering, those who are in shame, those who are sick, those who are lacking, He meets them with hope and with joy and with peace. And He says, trust Me, follow Me, know Me. I'll take you back to the Father where you belong. You can be an adopted son, an adopted daughter of the King, and belong at the table. Right? Like, come. Come one, come all. That He has lived the life you were meant to live, and you have failed dramatically in doing. But He has died the death that you did deserve, so that you don't have to. That no, nothing that you have done right this morning removes you from God being able to rescue you, to save you, and to pour grace out upon you. You are not too far gone because you're breathing. And the Lord is gracious, patient, longing for none to suffer, none to perish, but for all to find repentance, to trust that He is the solution. He is the answer so that you can have peace and lack fear. I want you to listen. This is Psalm chapter 2. Verse 12. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in Him. What we're seeing this morning is this, is that there is no refuge from Jesus when He comes in judgment, unless Jesus is your refuge. He is a safe, secure place to be and to land. He is the solid rock. He is our refuge, our hope, our strength, our Redeemer. He's everything. But if you choose to stand against Him, there will be nowhere to hide. There is no refuge. There is no place to escape. Listen to how we see this in this passage. Um, in verse 
31, And on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. The image here he's giving is like you're on the roof, this flat roof, right? And you see Jesus come back and you're like, I'm going to go get my stuff. And he's like, there's no time. The only hope you have in that moment is to run, to flee, and it won't be enough, right? He's like the instinct of that moment will not be to turn back and to grab what you have. It's too late at that moment. It's too late. You can't flee. You can't run. You cannot prepare. There's no refuge in that moment unless you've already found refuge in Jesus. Listen, the kingdom is lived seemingly in a backwards manner. Look at verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. Right? This is that we lay down our life, our goals, our dreams, our aspirations at the feet of Jesus. We say, Jesus, I want what you have for me. I want you. And in that, we actually find life, life eternal, hope, peace, and joy. But if we cling to what we believe is life, if we hold on to it and say, Jesus, I don't want what you have, right? Then what, when we think we're holding on to our life, we're actually going to find that we will lose it. When we lay our life down, we find hope and joy and peace, right? We see it at the cross, that the cross looked like a loss. It looked like Satan won. It looked like the enemies of Jesus won. But Colossians reminds us that at the cross, Jesus was putting to open shame, right? The powers and the principalities. That it looked like a loss, but he was winning because he was sacrificing himself on our behalf for God's glory and for our good. The, the, the kingdom is backwards in that we thought the first coming would be great and, and um, powerful, but it was in humility. And we're having to ask, do we see the kingdom in our midst? Do we see Jesus in our midst? The second coming is going to look like what we thought the first coming would be. And that the values of the kingdom do not line up with the values of the world. And that we forgive. And that we bear burdens. And that we give resources freely rather than hoarding them. Everything the world tells us to do is opposite of what the kingdom of God tells us to do. So he's showing us, listen, in all of these ways, the kingdom is calling you to live and understand and to think differently. And so do we trust the kindness and the character of God, His grace that is poured out? Because then we are called to live in light of it. We live in light of the fact that Jesus has already come. Right? He's already come, and so there is power and there's equipping found in the Word of God, and in the Spirit of God, because He has come and broken the power of sin. He has come to give us hope and to give us life. But it's already has happened, and it's not yet fulfilled completely. Right? And so we still have to live in light of the second coming, that there will be a day where Jesus will split the sky, and the world as we know it will end. That day has not come, and it is coming. And so we live in light of the fact that Jesus has come, and that He is coming. Both. I've been watching um, a military show with, with Jude um, here lately, and it, basically they're running uh, 
average folks through like special force training. And I was, <laughs> Carmen came in the other day and was like, I wouldn't do that. It was just her first comment as she walked through. And, and I, we were just joking about, if they called today and said, hey, come be on our show. If you haven't been training for that, you might as well not go. Right? Like, there's nothing you're going to do. Like, say, give me 24 hours. Like, what are you going to do in 24 hours, right? You're not all of a sudden going to be able to, to swim and to run and to climb and to lift and to take the abuse that you need to. So you, you have either been preparing for that and you're ready for it, or you've missed. You've missed the opportunity. What Jesus is telling us the second coming is going to be like, that you're either prepared for it, living in light of it, and ready because you recognize that it's coming. Or you are going to miss it completely and there's no hope in that moment to figure it out in the split seconds that you have. In Matthew 25, there's a parable of the ten virgins, right? And that they're given lamps and told to wait for the bridegroom's coming. And five of them are wise, and five of them are foolish, and, and five of them prepare, and they get their, their oil, and they have everything ready, and five don't. They're like, well, I'll have time to do it later. And then they all fall asleep, because the bridegroom took longer than they anticipated. And they are not condemned for falling asleep. But when the bridegroom is announced he's coming, five get up, they're ready, they have their lamps and their oil, and they take off after the bridegroom, ready to celebrate. And five are like, I don't have any oil, and it's dark. What am I going to do? And so they ask the five that are wise, hey, can we have some oil? And they're like, we don't have enough. So the five who are foolish run to the market to try to get what they need, and they miss the bride. And it's, it's the same sort of idea being taught in a different way, that we either live in light of the coming of Jesus and we are prepared for it, or we will miss it. And so he reminds us in verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. What did she do? They're told, as you flee, as you leave, you just keep going. You don't look back. And they go, and they get out, and she turns and looks back, and it's turned into a pillar of salt. Jesus has told us in Luke 9 that the one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit. He's saying, listen, once you've seen who Jesus is, once you've been called into the kingdom, you keep your gaze on where you are headed. And we don't look back at, the, at what life once was. We head towards Jesus. It's the same in Hebrews. That they, so they were looking towards a heavenly kingdom, a heavenly horizon, right? Knowing that this world was not home, that that was. And so they lived with purpose and with intent in every area of life with faithful obedience. Like, this isn't our home. And so, listen, church, are we supposed to have jobs? Yes. Are we to have relationships and, and children? Are we meant to, like, um, connect with other people? Are we meant to enjoy this life? Yes, Ecclesiastes told us that, that we can enjoy, right, the things before us. But we know that this isn't home. And so we don't stockpile and store up and live as though this is eternity and this is heaven. We are headed there. And so we hold things loosely. We hold things loosely. And we prioritize Jesus and we let things fall into the proper order. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3. 
Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think other if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. What is he telling us? He's like chase Jesus. Pursue Jesus. Make your decisions in light of Jesus. Spend your money in light of Jesus. Why? Because he's coming back and we don't know when. And the lightning could flash across the sky at any point. And so live in light of that. In Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus ascends to heaven, right, the disciples are standing there and they're like, he's giving them the commission to go out. And they're like, okay, how long until I return? So we have a job and a task right now until Jesus returns to make much of Jesus in every arena of our life, pointing others to Him. The church, this passage is not just a reminder to stay focused and to not wander. It's also a, the ability and a reminder to fight our sin. Because Jesus is coming back at any moment, right? At any time. It's sudden. And we don't want to be caught unaware. So we've all probably had a moment, whether it was with a boss or with a parent, right, where we have um, tried to game the system, right? We have done exactly what we wanted for the, all the time that we could because we thought we knew exactly when they were coming back. And we'll, we'll start sweeping or looking like we're working or do what we need to do and make sure things are right, but not any longer than we have to, right? Like we've, we've done this as kids, as adults. And what Jesus is telling us is you can't do this. You can't live your life like this. You cannot game the system. But let the anticipation of Jesus' return give you an urgency to fight your sin by the Spirit of God and by the, the, the power of the living, resurrected Jesus that we would put our sin to death. That we would live with urgency in, in sharing the Gospel. Of living in a manner that is worthy of Jesus. Church, we get Jesus. We, we get Him now, and we get more of Him when He returns. That we would delight in and enjoy Him. It means that our circumstances right now don't define us. That there is a timetable to any difficult thing you're going through right now. It will end, because eternity is coming for us. And it's in Jesus. Listen. When that lightning streaks across the sky, when Jesus splits the sky and returns for us, every knee is going to bow. But some of them are going to bow willingly. They're not going to be terrified. They're not going to be afraid. They're going to go, King, that is my rescuer. That is my, I know him. He has been mine and I have been his. He is my refuge. And I rejoice, and I will gladly bow my knee. You're here for me. And others will bow a knee out of fear and out of terror because judgment has come, and the time has run out, and there is nowhere to flee. There is nowhere to run, and their refuge is not Jesus. And there will be no refuge from Him in those moments.
But church, it means when you read Luke 17, it's not judgment that's coming, it's rescue that's coming. It's hope that's coming. It's eternity that has already begun in you, lived out. And so now, there's no more cancer, and there's no more death, and there's no more broken relationships, and there's no more pain, and there's no more lack of justice, and there's no more racism, and there's no more hate, and there's no more fear, and there's no more poverty, and there's no more lack. Because Jesus is here. And so right now, we are equipped to live out the kingdom amongst one another. And we get a taste of it. And we get to give people a hope more in Jesus, but there will be a day where that will be the reality. And Luke 17 is going, are you seeing that day with rescue and rejoicing, or are you terrified of it because you oppose Jesus? One final passage. This is also from Philippians 3. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So Jesus tells the disciples, it's going to take a little while. You have work to do, but I'm coming back. And you can trust me. This morning, when we live in light of this, we don't know when it's coming. We know it is. There is certainty in that. And that we have a task before us to make much of Him and to enjoy Him until either death or His return occurs. Church, in these moments, would we let the Spirit of God just minister to us? That if you fear this, you would ask, Why? And maybe it's that you, you, you know Jesus, but you seem to trust His character. And maybe that you fear it because you don't know Jesus. And you are standing opposed to Him this morning. And that you would bow a knee even today. Submit and say, I want you. I give it all up for you. Trust you. That others of us would, would maybe put to death this morning some sin. It holds us, and we think we got all the time to deal with it. That we would be reminded that we don't. That we would repent and confess it. That others of us would remind ourselves, right, we would take this as a warning and a reminder to be urgent in the way that we live, the way that we live on mission, and the way that we share Jesus and the things that we hope in. Maybe it's a reminder that we want to make our decisions in light of the fact that He's coming back. That we would not be prone to forget and prone to wander. Would the Spirit of God minister and work and speak in our hearts and our minds in these moments? And so if you listen, if you need to sit the rest of the service, you do that. If you want to stand and sing to your King, you do that. If you need to visit with someone in the room, would you do that? The Lord's Supper is also set up for believers who trust that it's His blood and His body that make, give us hope today, not ours. And that we would be reminded that His blood was spilt so ours wouldn't be. And His body was crushed so that ours wouldn't be. It was costly. And so at any point during this time, for those who are trusting Jesus this morning, you can move and take the Lord's Supper. There'll be some folks in the back if you need someone to pray with. But would we let the Spirit of God move among us and minister to us today as, as we need for our good and for His glory. Pray with us.
Father, we simply ask that you would let your word and your spirit do the work. Lord, that if there are things we're holding on to this morning, that you would peel our fingers off of them to see you rightly. And so, Lord, we trust you, and we ask you to move in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen.